There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by John and Jane Dacey from the organization Abolish Private Prisons. Abolish Private Prisons is a nonprofit whose mission is fairly self-explanatory. We had a great conversation that went from the inherent conflict of interests, which is present when you involve for-profit organizations into the world of prisons, to their intention to bring their case all the way to the United States Supreme Court. You can find more information about John, Jane, and Abolish Private Prisons at abolishprivateprisons.org, as well as some other locations which you'll find in the show notes. Uh, definitely encourage you to check it out. Thanks as always for listening. Remember to tell a friend. That's enough about that. Let's go. Well, let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Good day to you. Helping us move from awareness to action today is John Dacey, as well as Jane Dacey, the founders of a nonprofit organization known as Abolish Private Prisons. How are you, sir? Very good today. How are you? Doing great. How are you, Jane? Doing well, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great also. Now, I'm not sure if my experience with the correctional facilities was in a public or private establishment. <laughs> Centauri, do you have any? I'm pretty sure it was uh, public for me, but not, not sure. No fair idea. Enough, fair enough. Well, thanks again for being here. How did you get started? How did you get down this path? We, um, we founded the corporation in 2015, uh, an Arizona nonprofit corporation. Its name is Abolish Private Prisons. So there's no ambiguity about what you're trying to do. What we're trying to do. It's not our only mission, but um, that followed um, a few years of um, trying to get uh, others interested in the issue, um, trying to find other uh, hosts for funding, um, and finally, I decided now we need we need to have our own organization. Um, we need the 501c3 so people can make the tax um, exempt donations, um, and uh, we need to have our own board and staff and uh, pursue the mission um, internally. And the extent to which we can get others interested and on board and working with us, great. But we needed a vehicle. Um, and, and so abolish private prisons is that. So here we are. So was this just something that you started to read about and you said this is a real problem or you have a history working in this space? So, so I'm an old legal aid lawyer. Um, way back when I used to represent inmates um, over jail conditions. Um, I put that away for probably 30 years and more recently um, served as a um, volunteer mediator uh, for the federal district court to go to the prisons and mediate inmate lawsuits over things like medical care, mm. safety, religious freedom, diet. Um, and, and it was when I started brushing up on, on jail and prison law six years ago before um, entering into that service um, that I started to read the headlines from around the country to see what the hot-button issues were these days and whether they had changed from when I used to do that kind of work. 
And so that's the first time I ever encountered the words private for profit prisons. Um, I felt at the time, wait a minute, this is the government's job. This is not something that should be delegated. And the more I read about it, the more I became convinced this isn't just an improper delegation. It's, it's a modern form of slavery. Um, mm. That sounds like hyperbole. I don't think it is. Um, and I think its existence offends the Constitution. And, and uh, so that's why what we want to do is bring this issue before the United States Supreme Court. I find it um, a little surprising that this water has not been tested before in the courthouse, um, and um, it hasn't. So um, we want to bring this case. So ultimately the, the, the point of the organization is to bring this to a Supreme Court ruling to declare private prisons unconstitutional. That's job one. Okay. You know, and if I could use an analogy, so Brown versus Board of Education is the case we all learned about in civics class if we didn't live it. And that's, that's the case that said separate but equal public schools are unconstitutional in the United States, and we had to go about ending the segregation of the public school system. That's what we're trying to accomplish here in a sense of a sweeping statement that the prison system may not be privatized in the United States. We're starting from a different place. You know, the people that, that advocated for the end of apartheid through Brown versus Board of Education and other cases were facing existing U.S. Supreme Court precedent that said separate but equal schools were constitutional. Okay. We're not faced with that. <clears throat> what we have are federal and a lot of state laws that authorize prison privatization. So you're saying this is going to be easier? What I'm saying is we <laughs> we don't have the constitutional precedent already. Got it. We have legal precedent through legislation. Okay. And then, so walk us through, why is this an issue? So it seems like private prisons uh, seemingly are cheaper, safer. Why is this a problem? Well, first of all, let me, let me address the premise to your question. They're cheaper, they're safer. Whether they are or not is, is not what we're focused on. There are claims that they are cheaper. I haven't heard any claims that they're safer. Um, and there are government reports out that they are not cheaper. They're actually more expensive. But if I was an advocate for the prison industry, the private prison industry, I would dispute that. And I'd say... What two facilities are you comparing? In right. what location? Mm-hmm. On what day? You know, how about five years from now? Public prisons have been around for a couple of hundred years. Give us more time, we'll become more efficient. That'd be the argument I'd be making if I was on the other side of the fence. But the issue for us is not whether they are um, safer or less expensive and whether they would remain so even if they were on a particular day. The issue for us is, should they exist at all? So, again, to refer back to Brown versus Board of Education, 
the issue today for any member of the public would not be whether segregated schools provide just as good or better an education than desegregated schools. I think where we are in our consciousness today in the United States is that's not okay. The separation itself is the constitutional mm -hmm. insult. The point we wish to make is that creating a profit incentive to put people in prison is a really horrible idea. The most fundamental liberties expressed in our Declaration of Independence, in our U.S. Constitution, recognized by our Supreme Court, recognized by so many faiths, is liberty, freedom. And we're now putting it at odds, putting it at odds with a profit motive. That's a, that's a really bad idea. And, and if you're going to create that profit motive, the dynamic is you then create for-profit entities that have a vested interest in at least the status quo. But as we know with any for-profit business, part of what they want to do is grow. Well, how do you grow if you're a private prison? You put more people in prison. You have more private prison <clears throat> facilities. Or at least to keep the, keep the ones you have. And how do you keep the ones you have? So if you're a private for-profit prison, you have 24-7 control of the life of the inmates mm -hmm. within your facilities. So let me define my terms first. By private for-profit prison, I'm talking about the circumstance where a private corporation owns or leases a prison and has total operational control. So I'm not talking about a private food vendor in a public prison. So first of all, we're talking about the private corporation having 24-7 control. So going back to your question, how do you keep the prisoners there? How do you hang on to your valuable inventory. Right. Because the empty prison bed is not making money for <clears> you. The occupied prison bed is. It's the same as the hotel industry. They don't make money if the rooms are empty. Got to have butts in the seats. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you keep the inventory in your cells? Well... Catch them for more stuff? Well, let's talk about existing inventory. Okay. The prisoners in private prisons. Things that affect when an inmate leaves a prison, public or private, are things that occur during the period of incarceration. That can include earning early, early release time credits. Mm -hmm. That can include early parole. Well, a parole board may be public, but what are they going to rely on to make their decision? The records of the facility. So one way to make sure the inventory stays longer is to make sure they don't get out sooner. That's one. The other thing, of course, is to influence law. And that can include the front end, making more things criminal, making the sentencing for crimes longer, 
making the eligibility for early release or parole um, much narrower um, a band on the, on the continuum. Um, and things like mandatory sentencing, truth in sentencing, three strikes and you're out, three felonies, life sentence, doesn't matter what the three felonies are. By the way, marijuana sale and possession is a felony in Arizona. So, um, and then opposing things that would decriminalize, that would create alternatives to incarceration, or other things that might interrupt the cycle of criminal behavior, incarceration, release, recidivism, or violations of probation and parole that cause the person to cycle back into the prison system. So for example, half of our inmates in Arizona facilities now have been there before. They're recidivists, as opposed to half the inmates being there for a first time incarceration. So here's another um, effect of the, of, of the profit incentive. To the taxpayer, crime is costly. Incarceration is costly. Recidivism is a sign of failure of the individual, perhaps of the group the individual is with. It's a failure of attempts to rehabilitate and to um, make reentry to a society more successful. It's a sign of failure and it has a huge price tag attached to it, the dollar sign being just the most obvious. How much do we spend on uh, habilitating prisoners in the in the valley? I, I don't know the breakdown on that, Centauri. I can tell you that that annually our budget for corrections at the state level, state agency level, exceeds a billion dollars. It's now the third largest state agency budget, um, and and the increase in incarceration is another factor. But to go back to my point about the people cycling through the system and what a burden it is, not just on the taxpayer, but a burden on particular communities, burdens on families, you know, the, the spouse and the children in the community of the person who's in the prison. You know, it has an enormous impact on all of that. Well, for the public prison, the public jail, for the public officials that are responsible for the public facilities, those are signs of, of a societal illness that needs remediation. To the private prison corporation, return customers are good for business. Sure. That's not a good financial incentive. Recidivism is good for business. But aren't they just, aren't they just responding to the way that we're policing and the way that our courts are are carrying out sentences that the legislature put in place? No. So that's that's part of it. But the programs that are provided inside of a facility are a reflection of the efforts of that facility. Mm -hmm. And if you make more profits for your shareholders by cutting your costs and running the facility... That's an incentive to go skinny on your staffing, which, oh, by the way, affects safety as well. 
and to go skinny on your programs of rehabilitation and reentry. Um, and let's face it, the, the private prison corporation, the people who run those facilities, their number one loyalty is always going to be to their shareholders as opposed to the public, which is answerable to the voters. Hmm. I would say also, George, what you said where you asked if it was a response to um, the sentencing and the laws, well, part of that is yes, but also they are getting out ahead and creating those laws and creating those sentences to be able to have more people come the into pipeline. their prisons. Wow. Yeah. So um, there's huge lobbies that um, work to you know, criminalize more things and have longer sentencing, like uh, John said. So kind of to answer that part of your question, yes, it was their maybe initial reaction, but now they're making it part of their business model. Right. Well, and you can't blame them for doing that, uh, I suppose. Certainly the teachers' unions lobby for more money to go to education. I think that the number one, in fact, I know that the number one group to oppose the marijuana legalization initiative in California was the um, prison guards union. So that's not just the private prisons, that's also the public prisons and all their guards because they're certainly incentivized to have folks stay in prison too. Are they not? I think it depends on who you talk to. So I work with, I, I don't think you can look at prison guards as one thing. Hmm. There are multiple prison guard or correctional officer unions mm -hmm. and many that are not unionized at all. Um, some of the correctional officer union representatives I've met with don't think the same way as you've just described. The, as I understand it, I don't know this firsthand, the California Correctional Officers Association Union did lobby for things like truth and sentencing and three strikes and you're out. But I don't think you can say that means all correctional officer mm -hmm. unions support that. <clears throat> no, just the one in California. So, which is a very big and influential. It's a big one. <laughs> but, but you know, let's go back to that issue. Um, the two largest publicly traded, the two largest private prison corporations are publicly traded. So, Corrections Corporation of America, which recently changed its name to Core Civic, which is out of Nashville and um, Geo Group, which is out of Florida. I'm not sure where in Florida. Uh, so they're publicly traded. Anyone can buy stock. So is it a good idea to mm. allow unions that are involved in law enforcement or prosecutors or police or judges to be able to buy stock? Okay. It seems like an inherent conflict. In a in an organization that profits from incarceration. Right. I mean, what does that do to at least the appearance of the fairness of our criminal justice system? Now, most of our prisoners are not in private facilities, but we're trending in that direction. What we want to do as one of our efforts is to start rolling this back. We so, think this is a really bad trend, not just on the issue of prison privatization, but for our criminal justice system generally. I was under the impression that it's been in, in August of 2016 that they have taken steps to, to uh, get rid of the private prisons on a federal level. Is that not, is that not correct? Um, 
it's not so let me explain you're referring to Ms. Yates memo who's been been in the news as of late um, on behalf of the US Department of Justice August 18th um, that announced that the Federal Bureau of Prisons would um, no longer contract with private prisons but let's let's examine that so number one that followed an, an investigation uh, by the Office of Inspector General and a report um, that you know questions the quality of service right. that private prisons are providing and for the reasons I've already described you know that's a slippery slope on what day, between what facilities, in what year. Difficult to make apples to apples. But but having said that, number one, it was not a decision we're no longer going to use private prisons effective August 18th. We're going to let these prison contracts that are in place run their course. Okay. Which for several, or some of those contracts, it would be for several years. Number two, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is one of four federal agencies that use private prisons. Mm -hmm. And that statement didn't affect the other three federal agencies, one of which stepped up immediately and said, we can use those facilities. <laughs> wow. More importantly, that was a political announcement. And uh, if you read the initial blog on our website at abolishprivateprisons.org, we address this very issue. Do you guys still need to do what you're planning to do, given this announcement? Well, it was a political decision. Ms. Yates is gone. We have a new administration in place mm. that has, at least as candidate Trump, said he was very much in favor of privatizing prisons. It's not... Having said that, I don't want to politicize this issue right. because the private prison industry grew dramatically under Presidents Clinton and Obama as it did under Republican presidents. So the second thing is the election wiped away that decision most likely. But more importantly, that announcement by Ms. Yates did not affect the majority of the states. Mm which use private prisons. Right, yeah, right. It was just, just the federal. So there are also municipalities, counties, that use private prisons as well. One of the articles I think you can find on our website came from, um, from the, the New Orleans newspaper, the Times-Picayune, if I pronounce that correctly. But it was a story about rural sheriffs in Louisiana that own the jails they put people in. Wow. How's that for a conflict? That's a, really conflict yeah. That's a tricky one for sure. So, um, so in any event, um, I can't remember your last question. Just I've been talking, talking about the uh, that that decision in August that Ms. Yates came out and said we're going to start scaling back, but that's not going to have the sweeping effect that I had initially thought from reading the uh, the article that I had read. Let's assume it did have the sweeping okay. effect you assumed it would have. It would still be a political decision, and. If Ms. Clinton had won the election and she said she was opposed to prison privatization, let's assume her administration had come in and done away with private prison contracts at the federal level. Well, aside from the fact that that doesn't affect the states and municipalities, the administration that followed hers four or eight years later 
could change their mind. So the reason we want to go the judicial route is to have it declared the law of the land under the United States Constitution that this industry cannot stand. Stop it in its tracks. Stop it before it becomes too big to fail, Mm -hmm. which is what will happen as, as they become more powerful politically at the federal and the state levels to get more contracts because of the business dynamic you described. They will get more and more of the prison population. They already have two-thirds of immigration detainees. And they will be building newer facilities, so we'll close the older public ones. And when they command contracts such as they have in Arizona, 20-year guaranteed 90% or higher occupancy. So what that means is that if the crime rate goes down, the Arizona taxpayers will pick up the cost for the empty beds in these private facilities. The taxpayers aren't going to stand for that. Mm -hmm. So what will happen is we'll move more inmates from the public facilities to the privates. Mm. And we'll become more and more dependent. And they'll grow in their influence. And at some point, do they become too big to fail, meaning we are now so dependent on their expertise, on on how many inmates we have in their facilities without having alternatives, that it's now like the bank bailout. You know, we mm. we can't close There's nothing them. we can do besides... And it becomes politically, politically unpalatable for a court to say, we have to do away with right. this industry. Hmm. I read a I read a statistic and it just struck me as being even more important than I thought it was initially that in the federal prison system 72% of the inmates are non-US citizens and they're actually from Mexico and I just in the conversation that we're having now that strikes me as being even more terrible because they don't have any rights so they are kind of stuck Could you say that again? 72% of what? of the inmates in the federal system are non-U.S. citizens? I don't know the answer to that. You know, of course... Of, uh, I'm sorry. Of, of 70, 72% of the inmates in the private systems on the federal level, the private prisons on the federal level, are non-U.S. citizens. Well, that makes sense, because if you're including immigration <clears throat> and customs enforcement... And only 11% in the public prisons are non-U.S. citizens. So the majority of the folks that are non-U.S. citizens are on the private side, hmm. federally. Hmm. Clearly, we've got about two-thirds of the immigration detainees in private facilities. So that now, is slavery for sure, then? Well, no. The, the question I have is, the number that you just gave me, was that prisoners or was that combining prisoners with immigration with detainees? detainees? My yeah. guess is it's the latter. Um, <clears throat> because that's where you would pick up so many, such right, a high right. per- percentage, uh, or 100%. I can just read you the, the quote. It's from an article in the National Review in August of last year. It says, as of January 2014, inmates incarcerated in private facilities were primarily non-U.S. citizens with 72% from Mexico, while selected Bureau of Prison Institutions had an average of 11% non-U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. So... So that points out a couple of other issues. So, so 
plainly that includes immigration detainees, and, and of course you're going to have a high percentage of Hispanic Latino um, inmates in those facilities, which is different than people who are convicted of crimes mm -hmm. and are in prisons to serve sentences. Right. Um, and their rights are different because they're not citizens. legal residents mm -hmm. or citizens as well. Um, so, but, but the issue that pops out from this, there are particular communities, large sections of our population that are disproportionately represented in our prison system generally. And it's no secret. African Americans mm -hmm. and, and Hispanics are way overrepresented in our prison system compared to their percentage in our population generally. And and so the whole issue of whether our criminal justice system is blind when it comes to race, um, I, I would never make that argument with a straight face. Right. Um, but so there's the race factor, but then there's also the issue of what communities might even be more at risk in a system that is driven by a profit motive. I'm not saying our system is driven by the profit motive yet, but we sure are headed that way because these companies are going to be diversifying more than they even have. They're getting into private probation and parole and bail and selling specialty services to the front end of law enforcement, police and prosecution. So this, this, this is not a good situation that we're moving toward, and that's why now is the time to do something about it. Something to say about that, too. There's a story, um, I'm going to talk about the judge out of Pennsylvania, but that basically kind of demonstrates how the, these systems, yes, currently... Um, affect certain communities disproportionately, but it puts everyone at risk when there's a profit to incarcerate as many people as possible. And this story is a mother had a son who was, I think, a teenager, but he was drinking, and so she contacted her local police and said, you know, I'm going to call and bust him, but I just want to, you know, scare him so that he gets back on the right track, hang out with the wrong friends, he'll get diversion, you know. She talked it through. They were all in agreement. And he ended up being in front of this judge who was um, taking kickbacks from the private juvenile facility. Um, he ended up going to jail for 28 years to life for taking a million dollars, the judge. But um, for sentencing primarily black teens, but any teens, he would send them, instead of giving them diversion, he would send them to juvie. And unfortunately, this child committed suicide mm. in juvie. Um, so... Horrific story, but that he was from an affluent family. Um, the mother had talked to the police ahead of time, that kind of thing. And so it just shows that it by having these private institutions, you allow the ability for corruption to, come, to right. permeate. More so than you would. Mm -hmm. right. so. To be certain, there's plenty of corruption in right, public Right, 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 right. Every level of, of life. Mm -hmm. But but when you add the profit incentive... Then to, yeah. It's not just corruption. Now you've created a legal incentive to incarcerate. So the First Amendment is going to protect the efforts of private prison corporations to hire lobbyists to spend on 
political candidates to lobby legislatures and Congress on the passage of laws or opposing the, you know, the reformation of our criminal justice codes. Um, and, and so we're creating this legal dynamic. But you asked earlier, is it okay? You know, isn't it just like any other business? To want to grow and, and to profit more, and um, and I guess my answer is no, it's not. Um, if you're talking about building a road or, or running a charter school or a private versus a public hospital, you're providing public services just as the private prison corporations do, in a sense but you're not taking away anybody's liberty in the process mm -hmm. when you're advocating for more money for whatever it might be, to help out the logging industry with new, new roads, whatever it might be. You're not talking about taking away someone's liberty as a result. Because at that, that point, the lives are commodities. Lives are commodities. Um, it's, the, it's the physical body in the cell. Right. You know? So I haven't even addressed the issue of prison labor. But it, which, of course, can be another aspect of the profit incentive. There are all kinds of other ways in which large financial interests are profiting from our system of mass incarceration, even the public, even the public system. But we had to start somewhere. So we decided to pick on this issue. So as we... Um, you know, the, the, the whole point of this podcast is to move from awareness to action. So I know you guys have gotten a lot of traction behind this. So what does that look like? What is the community that has rallied around you? What have they said? What have they done? How can folks be engaged in this work? Um, let, me, uh, let me start with the last part of your question, how to engage. Um, so there are lots of different ways to engage. Some that can be very simple and hardly take any time at all. So our website, again, www.abolishprivateprisons.org. We have a Facebook page. People who are inclined to support us, please read it. Like us on the Facebook page and share it. Share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your fellow students, whatever it might be, who you think might be inclined to do the same thing and ask them to do the same things. Organizations can, can adopt resolutions. So, um, uh, as an example, the NAACP National Organization in 2012 passed a resolution calling for the abolition of private for profit prisons, citing similar actions taken by Catholic and Methodist and Episcopal groups and groups like American Friends Service Committee and American Correctional Officer, which is an, an organization that includes correctional officer unions that is very opposed to privatization of prisons. Um, divestment campaigns. So on a, on a number of, not a number, but on some college campuses, students have organized to um, ask, if not demand, the trustees of their universities to divest university pension funds from private prison mm -hmm. corporations. And to even go further, put some pressure on organizations that are 
indirectly involved, but in, such as through stock ownership and the like. Um, uh, clearly writing letters, letters to the editor, hmm. um, letters to your local representatives. Um, so spreading the word. Um, and, and most importantly for us, we need funding. Hmm. In order to bring this challenge, we need funding. And we're going the grassroots route right now. Um, of course, we'll be doing more than that. Grant applications, looking for uh, large donors that support this cause. Um, but for right now, most of our efforts are through education, raising awareness, writing, and asking people to donate through our website. You know, if, to a college student who might support this and might have very little means, you know, giving up a cup of coffee a, a month and sending us $5, it's a symbolic and valuable gesture and join our website so that we can keep them informed of updates. Um, but those are all different ways and, and, you know, to take it a little higher level. So as we talk to some of the student groups at different universities, um, one of the things we will be encouraging them to do is to reach out and link to similarly minded students at other universities mm. to create a network. Same with unions, for example. Same with churches. So one thing I'd, I'd like to mention <clears throat> we're trying to build a broad base of support. I don't see this as a liberal or a conservative cause. Anyone who is concerned about fairness of our criminal justice system and about liberty, one of the natural rights represented by our founders in the Declaration of Independence, um, uh, and there are a number of churches that have spoken out in opposition to the privatization of prisons on things such as gospel grounds. That's not a liberal or conservative statement. It's an ethical statement. Mm -hmm. It's about values, morals, um, integrity. That should appeal, I think can appeal to many people all over the political spectrum. Um, it's why I think when we have spoken with faith communities that they've been very open to supporting us because they recognize it as this just ain't right. Mm -hmm. That's a long answer to your question. No, I don't great. know if I ever got okay. to the beginning no, you got it, of the yeah. question. It, it, does, it does strike me as a matter of principle more so than any other kind of issue, Democratic or Republican. And I would also suggest, just for students are out there listening, um, for reference, the first school that was ever successful in um, getting their trustees to divest their pensions was Columbia, uh, followed by a few schools in the UC system. Um, and then there's current uh, divestment campaigns at Princeton and Yale that are underway. So um, they're just something to reference and kind of, uh, we'd also love to connect with those groups, you know, and... You mentioned that one of the, the large publicly traded companies had changed their name. Was that in response to to this, away from prison company to Geo Global or whatever you said it was? It went from Corrections Corporation of America to Core Civic. Core Civic. And, Core Civic, and you'd mm -hmm. have to ask them. 
So right. they have facilities in Arizona. Um, so Corrections Corporation of America, just so you know, they have the <clears throat> fourth largest prison system in the United States. That puts them behind the United States. I, I'm sorry, the fifth largest. That puts them behind the United States, I believe, California and Texas. Um, and the fourth largest is the private prison system itself, yeah. the fifth being CCA. Oh. So that's how large they have become. And what has helped them become large and will help them become much larger is the fact that our society is seemingly addicted to incarcerating people and addicted to criminalizing behaviors. Um, and so we have a society of mass incarceration. Do private prisons exist anywhere else internationally? Yes. Okay. So they're spreading through the United Kingdom just wow. as they are through the United wow. States, for example, um, and not just limited to the United Kingdom. Um, the mass incarceration state. So in 1980, we had about 400 thousand people in our prisons, maybe 500,000. Today, about 2.3 million when you right. include jails and prisons. Our population didn't increase four and a half times. People just got really bad, John. <laughs> there you go. And the first, first slide on our website is um, that the U.S. has, we have 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Wow. We incarcerate more people than Russia, more people than China. Combined. Combined. Wow. Um, but think about how many people are in China. In Russia. <laughs> yeah. And um, But talk about Israel. Yeah. So... Um, in 2009, um, the issue of the constitutionality of uh, prison privatization went before the Israeli Supreme Court. And that court decided um, that for-profit private prisons were a human rights violation mm. under the Israeli Constitution. So mm. they have a clause in their Constitution, human rights clause. The initial response might be, well, yeah, they got a different constitution. It's going to be interpreted differently. Um, but to actually read the opinion, uh, it, it spends quite a bit of the opinion discussing American case law, oddly enough. And it also goes back to the roots of government. Um, many of the same sources our own founders looked to before creating our own government at our founding. Uh, what's, what's most interesting to me about that opinion is that they focus on the dignity of the human being as being guaranteed by that contract. And our Eighth Amendment of our Constitution, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, is founded on that same concept, human dignity. There's a reason we prohibit mm -hmm. cruel and unusual punishment. And, and the second thing is what we regard as cruel and unusual evolves over time. Mm -hmm. So whipping, public stocks uh, in our early years would never be tolerated today because that would offend 
our sense of decency, which is also part of the Eighth Amendment. Because a court has not decided the issue of prison privatization, the U.S. Supreme Court, there's an opening here there, There's for inspiration to fill that void. Um, and, and so that's why I think this is a most opportune time so, to, 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 to challenge the existence of this industry. So what's the way forward? Do you need one case to start taking it up the, uh, the ladder, so to speak? Or how does one get from where we're sitting right now to the Supreme Court to argue it? Well, that's clearly where you start is with one case. But whether it has to be one case or several in different locations okay. in order to get the case to the Supreme Court, you know, with what strategy we will adopt will be refined as we get closer and closer to that day. So Brown versus Board of Education, to go back to that as the example, that was not one case. I think there were four separate cases that came up, um, and it was the case involving the um, uh, Topeka School District that, that was the name on the case. But I believe there were four separate lawsuits that all culminated mm. in what what became Brown versus Board of Education. So whether okay. we would have to do that, sometimes the U.S. Supreme Court will accept a case because there are inconsistent rulings among the different federal circuits, um, and they want to clarify the law. Um, whether that's required in a circumstance like this will depend on what happens. But just just so I understand, and potentially our our listeners don't completely understand, where would the first case theoretically be heard? At what level? And then where would it go? How would that actually? A lawsuit in federal district court in Arizona, in Phoenix. Okay. Got it. Have you considered just directly tweeting President Trump? He loves the Twitter. And he may respond and and, 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 not a and, bad idea. and, and get you right in there. <laughs> it's not right. a bad idea. So <laughs> I'm just saying. So you're talking to somebody who learned how to turn on a computer mm. about two years ago. Jane? You're asking me about Twitter. <laughs> Jane? Sure, I mean, sure. I, I, I yeah. feel like this is where you would come in. No. <laughs> He's the executive director, so he makes Fair that enough. call. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I, again, it's, it's, it's not... We're not approaching this as a political question. Now, having said that, there are plenty of, of organizations of like mind that are approaching this issue through other strategies. Mm. So grassroots, education, lobbying, um, formal lobbying, um, through churches and the like, through advocacy groups. Um, and that are approaching it through the political process, which is all, of course, most welcome in our view. We're taking a different approach, and and I think that's why our organization um, is unique, if you don't mind. People might ask, why give to this organization versus, you know, when there are plenty of, of of um, advocates out there that are seeking the same result. Mm -hmm. We're going about it differently. We intend to go to the courthouse and challenge this industry on the Constitution. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. One last thing, um, just since he spoke about this is priority number one, but it's not our full mission. 
um, is the broader mission of the organization will be to work with ex-offenders who have experienced what's called a civil death. Um, so once you have been convicted of a felony, you can't vote, you can't get Section 8 housing, you can't get food stamps, you can't get student, uh, student loans. And so if you don't have some sort of uh, social safety net, um, it's kind of hard to get back into Get back on your feet. Yeah, get back on your feet, especially with these private prisons not really investing in rehabilitation. rehabilitation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we want to work with uh, people who have paid their debt to society and helping them you know, become contributing members of society once again. Awesome. You know, and that kind of civil death, I mean, it goes beyond fingerprint clearance that you need in order to be able to work in some industries at all. Um, you know, we're putting a scarlet letter on people for the rest of their lives, perhaps for something they did when they were 18 years of age. Right. And now they're 40 and, and, and still having difficulty getting a loan to go to college or to get a job. It doesn't just affect those individuals. It affects their families. It affects their children. It affects communities that are particularly hard hit by the criminal justice mm -hmm. system. Um, and, um, and, and so this civil death thing, it plays very much into the dynamic of recidivism, which private prison corporations look upon as an investment opportunity. Return customers are good for business. So this is all tied together. We've picked on one issue. But this civil death issue is um, an example of the other part of our Eighth Amendment, which prohibits excessive fines and penalties. So we would, you know, that, that's going to be another issue we're going to be examining as well. Excellent. Well, as our time is drawing to a close, Centauri, what else would you like to, to get off your chest, sir? Got all my questions answered. John? You mean I've got a, a, a final statement here? Yeah. Yes, uh, counselor. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, any, anything that listeners can do to help us along the lines that, that I just mentioned. And that can include um, even scheduling an event. Mm. So, for example, we're going to be doing several presentations at Harvard and um, at Michigan Law School um, in March. Uh, we're going to be doing a full-day event um, at ASU's law school in April. Um, but we've also, we're also willing to speak to church groups, other church, uh, school groups, um, civic groups, uh, Changing Hands Bookstore, and Newton Plaza has been a wonderful supporter. They've hosted us, um, and it enables us to reach a lot of people. Um, so that's another way that if people are so inclined to get involved in this cause to, to help us out. Jane? Yeah, I think, I think we said it all. Thank you guys for having us and for your interest in our mission and in this issue. You know, I think it's becoming increasingly important. And, um, it's something that people might have a kind of vague idea about, um, but we're trying to really educate the public because it really affects everyone. Excellent. Well, you will find all the information and all the locations um, of where you can find more information about uh, Abolish Private Prisons in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and tell a friend. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real. <laughs>